If you all want to make your way into the auditorium, we're going to go ahead and get started. Good morning and welcome. Glad you all are here. Thank you for saying good morning, Dory. It's very kind of you. It's nice. It's a very friendly church. So we're combining Sunday school classes today, adult Sunday school classes, high school and junior high. This is our custom when we have a guest speaker in town. So I'm glad you all are a part of this. I've got a series of questions for our speaker, and uh, we're going to try to stump him and give him a lot of really hard technical questions. Uh, really, we're not going to do that. We're glad he's here with us. But we should pray first, and I'm going to ask you to join me in doing that. Father, thank you for this morning. Thank you for this unique and special day that we have where we gather together as the people of God to be able to hear your word proclaimed, to fellowship together, and bring honor and glory to the Lord Jesus Christ. Thank you for all that you've done for us, for the many good gifts you've given to us, most importantly, eternal life and the knowledge of you. Allow us to learn, allow us to have our minds uh, engaged as we think about things from your word, things that will matter forever. Uh, allow us to be encouraged and further equipped today. In Jesus' name, amen. So yesterday we had a conference. We called it Christ Our Righteousness. Most of you were there, but not all of you were. Uh, and for those of you who weren't there, I want to introduce our guest speaker. Uh, John Fesco is with us. Uh, he and his wife and kids live in Southern California, Escondido. And uh, John is the professor and uh, professor of systematic theology and historical theology at Westminster Theological Seminary, California. He's also the academic dean, so you should be impressed. Um, I'm thankful for Dr. Fesco because of his ministry of writing and also teaching. Uh, we've sent a number of men to seminary there in Escondido, and uh, they've benefited greatly from his ministry. So super grateful for him and for, for what the Lord does in and through him. I heard yesterday that we were out of most of his books in the bookstore, so I brought some of mine from my library, and I'm going to be selling them at double price, um, because I wasn't born yesterday, so uh, he's written a number of helpful books that we read around here and talk about, and, and just grateful for that. John, how about if we start by talking about imputation, because okay. that's what you talked about yesterday. What is imputation? Such a big word. Uh, mm -hmm. Why is it important? Just a little bit of review would be great. Sure. Imputation is the idea that uh, when you want to take one thing and uh, take it and move it to another column, you, you think of it in terms of accounting. I'm going to accredit from one account to another. So if you have no money and I have some money and I want to accredit to your account some money, then I will transfer some money from my account to your account. Well, the way that the Bible uses this language is that when it comes to, in terms of the law, uh, we take Christ's perfect obedience and God transfers that obedience to our account. And so that when God looks upon us, because we've received the imputed righteousness, the accredited righteousness or obedience of Jesus, that means he sees us not as we are in and of ourselves, but he sees us through Christ, so that he just sees the perfect obedience of Christ because it's been transferred to us, it's been accredited to us, or it's been imputed to us. Okay. What makes that so important? Uh, it, it's really important because you have to ask the question, you know, and the Bible really poses this question a lot, and you see this especially, say, in Romans 4 and 5, uh, that either we 
secure our salvation through our obedience. And as Paul says in Romans 4, if we do that, then we have something to boast about before God. Look what I did. Look what I was able to accomplish. Or if it's because God imputes or accredits our sin to Christ and then imputes or accredits Christ's obedience to us, then as Paul says, we receive our salvation as a free gift. And if it's a free gift, then we can't take credit for that. And that means that God gets all the credit. Christ gets all the credit. And so that's why it's so important that we recognize that imputation lies at the heart of the doctrine of justification. That is how God declares us uh, in conformity to the law in his sight. Uh, and that lies at the heart of the gospel. So I want, to, I want to pick up on that, John, and have you talk more about the relationship between imputa- <clears throat> excuse me, imputation and justification. Mm-hmm. I'm not sure if you know this. I know you're on Twitter, but you're not very active. But in the Twitterverse, um, we all know the Twitterverse, uh, in, in the world of Twitter, you have been referred to as the justification answer man. <laughs> so, I didn't um, know that. Yes, yes, by you- someone very, very smart. I'm not sure who he is. I think he's... <laughs> the pastor of Omaha Bible Church. All right, all right. But anyway, someone has referred to you as the justification answer man. Okay. Um, <laughs> so I, in all seriousness, further explain how imputation and justification relate. Maybe start by telling us why justification is so important. Yeah. Um, first, just so that you know, I, I, it's pretty true that my wife, I think, runs all my Internet stuff. I... You know, I'll, I'll look on the Internet and go, I don't remember taking that picture. Why is it on Instagram? Or as I like to call it, Snapface. Uh, it's just like, okay, wow. And my, when did you put this up there? She says, I may, I'm humanizing you. <laughs> I'm showing people that you're a real human being. Okay, I, I'm going to interrupt here just to give some color commentary and, and tell, tell these godly, sweet, pious people what song you wanted to enter into your wedding ceremony to? I, I really beg my wife, please let me enter into the Imperial Death March. Because <laughs> I'm a huge Star Wars fan. <laughs> and my wife very quickly reminded me, your job's just to stand there <laughs> and, and to wear your tuxedo and have the ring. That's it. <laughs> don't talk, don't say nothing else, just be there. So, yeah. yeah. Okay. Yeah. So we digress. Yes. Okay, Why, back. What is justification? Yeah. Why is it so important? And then related to imputation. Yeah, okay. As I briefly alluded to just a few moments ago, justification is that when we appear before the throne of God uh, and we stand there in his presence, what is it that's going to allow us to enter into heaven, to put it in those simplest of terms? Is God going to declare that we're righteous? That means that we have fulfilled the law and its obligations. Or is he going to declare that we are guilty uh, for violating the law, for breaking the law? And so there are essentially one of two ways that God will declare us righteous in Christ. Uh, Sorry, righteous. First of all, it's either that we have completely obeyed the law, every single commandment, perfectly. Or it's that we look to Christ by faith alone. And by faith alone and by God's grace alone, that we receive this accredited obedience of Christ, and we receive the forgiveness of our sins. Because it's not enough simply just to be innocent of wrongdoing. 
we not only have to be innocent of wrongdoing, but we also have to positively fulfill the law. And so that's how justification and imputation uh, relate to one another. Justification is the declaration that God says that we are in conformity to the law and that we you know, are righteous and we receive by faith alone in Christ alone. And imputation is how we receive uh, Christ's obedience accredited to our account. Okay, excellent. Let's turn to Romans 4, 5 for a related question, but practical for us here in Omaha, Nebraska as well. I'll have you read it in just a moment, if you would, John. But what I'm curious about is how this relates to what we've been talking about this weekend. Mm -hmm. And in particular, how how is this um, matter of God justifying the ungodly Mm -hmm. important? Mm -hmm. Especially for us here who live in Omaha, Nebraska. We have Creighton University here. We have Boys Town here. Uh, A number of you come from a Roman Catholic background. Uh, I have dear, dear friends who are Roman Catholic, and I like to talk to them about the gospel and justification, and uh, Romans 4, 5 is something we talk about a lot. So what I would like to have you do is maybe help us with our evangelism. Mm -hmm. Maybe if we could talk to our friends about this verse, Mm -hmm. how it might um, help us communicate the differences Mm -hmm. um, in a loving, kind way. So he's equipping us for evangelism here, if you will, with those we love who come from a Roman Catholic background. Okay. Uh, First an anecdote, then a theological observation, and then what Paul says here to lead into this uh, very briefly. First of all, I was once talking with an unbeliever, and we were talking back and forth, and she said, you know, I don't understand this whole idea that God just forgives you. Certainly you have to do something in order to to be saved. Certainly you have to, you know, do some good works, be obedient. And I said, no, that's not how it works. It's that God forgives you. Uh, And she said, that just doesn't make any sense because I think she was operating in her mindset that essentially there's no free lunch. You know, you've got to do something to get something. Uh, To put it in in very simple terms, because I've told Pat this, I'm a seven-year-old at heart. Uh, you know, my mind works very simply. So the illustration is, is that you've got to take your shower and get cleaned up, you know, before you can go into the house and, 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 and enjoy the company of others because you're just kind of, you know, disgusting and smelly and dirty and what have you. So you've got to get cleaned up first. Uh, now, the theological observation is that, you know, that kind of uh, observation by the, this unbeliever that I was talking to you know, you get it theologically kind of articulated in the Roman Catholic Church that says, okay, God will give you some grace to kind of get you started. Uh, and you get that initially in your baptism. But then you have to uh, give in the effort. You have to, you know, put, in, put some skin in the game, so to speak. And you've got to increase in the amount of righteousness or in obedience so that when you get to the final judgment, you get to the final judgment... Uh, God will say, okay, you have filled up with a sufficient amount of obedience so that I'll let you in. But if you don't have a sufficient amount of obedience, then you have to go to purgatory. Now, again, my seven-year-old mind, what's purgatory? Purgatory is like if you uh, go to detention. 
you are not, you know, you have it, you got in trouble, you got to go to detention. Um, except the difference is, is that purgatory is not detention. It's far worse. It's a place of suffering, but that what you have to do is you have to work off uh, and get rid of the sin. Hence, it's purgatory. It's a purgation. It's a cleansing. So the fires of purgatory will burn the sin out of you until you are holy enough to enter into heaven. So think in terms of you've got to get cleaned up before you're, you can be let in. Now, the third observation, which is what Paul says here, and this to me, I think is, you know, I, I, it's difficult for me to say which verses are the most important, which ones are the most, you know, uh, theologically impactful. But I know for me, this is one of the most comforting verses in all of the Bible to me personally. And, he, and Paul here is talking about justification and he says, and to the one who does not work but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. You know, first he says, to the one who does not work, that's crucial. So it's not by the accumulation of your obedience. It's not that as if, you, you know, you've, you're not working. You're resting. Who are you resting in? You're resting in Christ's work, the one who has done the work for you. Hence, to the one who does not work but believes, you trust in what Christ has done. Okay? You know, I, I, I like to break this up in terms of you not only recognize intellectually who Christ is and what he has done, but you trust in his work. You know, you can understand the principles of science that say that if you take a curved surface, you rush air over it, it creates lift, which enables an airplane to fly. But you can also say, I ain't getting on one of those contraptions. I don't trust the pilot. So it's not just the intellectual knowledge that you have to have, but you have to trust in Jesus that he will save you. So not to the one or to the one who does not work but believes God justifies he declares righteous and here's the word the ungodly. That that right there those are the sweetest words in 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 all of the Bible in the sense that God is not saying you have to get cleaned up first. Rather, he's saying, I'll take you as you are. I know who you are. I know that you're a wicked sinner. I know that you hate me apart from my grace and love. But because I loved you first, and because I have given you grace, and because I have opened your eyes so that you can see who Jesus is, and you can embrace him by faith, I justify you. I declare you righteous, even though you are ungodly. Those are sweet words of redemption, of salvation, of reconciliation. And that goes, that says, that's something very different than from what that unbeliever was saying. I got to do something. It's very different from you got to get cleaned up and do your good works and if you don't have enough, you got to go to purgatory. It's Christ saying, come as you are. And that to me is just, you know, amazing. Super. So even 
So theologically, how would Rome, how would Rome's theology read that verse differently? That verse is in their Bible, mm-hmm. but theologically they're reading it as God justifies what kind of people? Mm-hmm. Godly people. And I yes. think that what they would probably say is, well, maybe initially you're ungodly. Maybe initially you're ungodly. But finally, when you get to the final judgment, he's going to have to justify you as godly. But I want to say, you know, um, the Protestant reformers were very specific about this. Remember, when it comes to the law, it's an all-or-nothing proposition. And I think that with Roman Catholicism, I think the attitude exists even within the Protestant church. We think that, well, if I can just be really good over here with these commandments, then God will cut me some slack over here with these other ones that I don't do so well. You know, we think that God will grade on a curve. Um, And that's not the way it works. You know, James says, if you violate the law at one point... You violated the whole law. You know, think about, you know, a, a, a historic painting. Uh, I'm not a big art fan, you know, not, not art fan, but I don't know that much about art. But let's pretend it's the Mona Lisa. And let's pretend you take a pocket knife and you poke a hole in it. Some, and then you go to try to sell it. Somebody's going to say the painting is destroyed. Well, no, no, it's just a little hole. It's just a little hole on her nose. It's fine. No, the painting is ruined. The whole thing is ruined because of that teeny tiny hole. That's the way the law is. It's not one part or another part. It's the whole thing. And so even as a Christian, when you are in Christ, you break the law, you're guilty of violating the whole law, not just one part. And so to try to say that you're going to stand in God's presence and say, yeah, I'm pretty good. I've only broken these three commandments 16,000 times, but here's my good works. Uh, We still fall short. So, you know, and I'll talk, you know, I'll mention this imagery. I mentioned this imagery um, in my sermon in a little while. Uh, but uh, in the Middle Ages, you had the practice of alchemy. It was the idea of trying to, to combine the right chemicals to turn lead into gold. And that's ultimately what it is when we try to combine our good works and Christ's good works to come up with the gold of salvation. It always ends up as lead. <laughs> so would it be true or false that God requires absolute perfection for eternal life? Yeah. Absolutely. You know, and, and we read that in Leviticus 18.5. Uh, to the one who does these, meaning the commandments, he will live by them or live in them. Paul quotes that in Romans 10.5. He quotes that in Galatians 3.12. And he puts that in, in antithesis uh, to justification by faith alone. You know, he says, the law is not of faith. It's the title of one of the books that me and one of my, uh, two of my colleagues edited. And one of our students once said, but the law is of faith, not realizing that we were quoting Paul. Um, 
And what Paul means by that is you do the law or you believe the gospel. But it's not a combination of both. You're not going to get into heaven, so to speak, by obeying and believing. And this is where it goes to that, you know, that most fundamental verse uh, that I think we're all familiar with, but perhaps we uh, somewhat regularly forget. And that's Ephesians 2.8 and following, you know, where Paul says, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. Now, will Christians produce good works? Yeah, because we are united to Christ, and he gives us life. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk on them. But it's those works are not our ticket in, but simply the flag that says God has saved us. So good works are important. We're not saying they are not important. Right. But it's the fruit. It's the result. Yeah. Keep Ephesians 2.10 out of 8 and 9. Keep things in the right order. Mm-hmm. But there is such a thing as a there is such a thing as Ephesians two ten, mm-hmm. right? Good yeah. works Absolutely. need to be there, but in the right order. Absolutely, yeah. John, years ago, uh, Molly and I were doing a Bible study with a, a, a couple of friends of ours, uh, Chris and Mary, and we we're studying Romans together. They're both cradle Catholics, and finally, Chris said to me, "He goes, I get it, I understand." I said, "Okay." It was this aha moment in a restaurant, and he said, "God is great." We suck, so we need Jesus. <laughs> and I thought, that's exactly right. He's got to figure it out. That was after Romans 3. Yeah. And I thought, at least he understands yeah. we're in trouble and we need a yeah. substitute. We need imputation. Yeah, so. yeah no, absolutely. I, I'm, I, Paul may have put it slightly more eloquently. But <laughs> a little bit, but yeah. yeah absolutely. Well, he was a public school classmate of mine. So okay. that's just how we, that's how we think. Northwest Huskies. Uh, anyway. So let's take just a little bit of a break and talk about um, your first experience at Runza. <laughs> I liked it. I thought. It Did was you great. taste the heavenly gift, or was it you know one bite and you're done? Yeah. No. You know, um, when I was a pastor, there was a church lunch. We do that. It was usually every Sunday. And uh, so they would, the, the ladies and everybody would wait for me because sometimes I get stuck talking to people. And so finally get into church lunch. But right before I'd go, you know, they were waiting for me so I could do a prayer. And uh, I would walk by the dessert table and grab a cookie and eat it. And uh, you kids don't do that. That's bad. But the, the moms would kind of be upset. They're like, what are you doing? You know, that, 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 that's dessert. You're supposed to have that afterwards. And I'm like, oh, no, this is my eschatological cookie. And they'd say, uh, what do you mean? What kind of you know, theological kung fu is this that you're trying to pull? And I said, this is the cookie of the already but not yet. This is the cookie, the taste of the greater dessert that is yet to come. Because, you know, it's, it's a fine act that when you get to the dessert, you take that tiny little styrofoam plate and you stack it as high as you can. Or at least I used to. Uh, now it catches up with me too quickly. But you stack it up as high. And I told them, I said, that cookie is a taste of the heavenly blessings to come. Well, that runza was, I think, a taste of the future, you know, uh, food that we'll get in heaven. It was really good. I liked it, yeah. So I've lived in Omaha long enough, like lots of you have, to know that lots of people don't like runzas. So, um, and even mock what, you know, runzies and all this kind of stuff. I've had friends say, 
But so now we're driving by one next to his hotel, and I said, you know, that's a that's a Nebraska thing. You know, here's what it is. It sounds gross, but they actually taste good. And so then he starts talking about how he likes stinky food, and I thought, perfect. <laughs> He's actually going to like Runza's. So yeah. Todd Swift and some others took him there yesterday. It's so. good. It's all good. All right. I think I took like $75 worth of frozen Runza's to my brother in Massachusetts, <laughs> and it was a big Runza party. But That's anyway. hilarious. So on the, that was on the lighter side. Let's, okay. let's dive in again uh, right. on a deep one. Let's talk about the justification of Christ. Okay. Let's talk about Christ's vindication in 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse yeah. 16, I think it is. Yep, that's right. And yeah. uh, you may need to uh, pinch yourself, not your neighbor at this point in time. I want your brain to be engaged. It's actually something I didn't hear about for the longest time in my Christian life. And once I did... I saw it there in the text of Scripture, and it helps so much when it comes to assurance, when it comes to understanding God accepting us in Christ. Uh, it's this matter of the vindication of Christ, or it's the word for justification. Christ was justified, and I would love to hear uh, Dr. Fesco talk to us about that for our assurance, for our understanding because it relates to imputation, it relates to justification. Mm -hmm. So if you want to just teach us a little bit about the vindicating work of Christ. Yeah. I think that when we hear Christ was justified, it, it, it doesn't quite fit and it sits sideways because we think, well, wait a minute, that doesn't sound right. I understand that as a sinner, I'm justified. Okay, I got it. But isn't that a category mistake to say that Christ was justified? And on the one hand, the, the, the confusion is certainly understandable. But on the other hand, I want to say it's an inherently biblical idea. Now, how is it biblical? Well, first, we have to understand that justification is simply a verdict, okay? It's just a verdict. In other words, it's a judgment. So that when you go and stand before a judge, uh, a judgment brought against you can be a good judgment or a bad judgment. You can be found innocent or you can be found guilty. So that when God, the Father, judged Christ the Son, it doesn't necessarily indicate that it's going to be a negative outcome. Because I think when we hear final judgment, we think, oh no, I'm, you know, it's, it's a bad scene. But even at the final judgment, we know that it's not necessarily a, a negative thing for everybody because those who are in Christ receive a favorable judgment whereas those who are not in Christ receive an unfavorable judgment or a negative judgment. Okay, so when we understand that, then we can say that God the Father judged Christ. Now, why would he judge Christ? Well, because if you remember in the ministry of Christ, the religious leaders, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, they falsely judged Christ. They falsely uh, condemned him to death for sin and for blasphemy. You know, the high priest said he's called himself equal with God. What more do we need to hear? He rends his garments. They sent him to the cross. They condemn him. He's guilty in their eyes. So by what means does God the Father vindicate, or more specifically, we can say, reverse the verdict? Through what means? Yeah, through his resurrection. God reverses the verdict and says, no, my son is righteous, 
Death cannot hold him. It has no right over him. And so I raise him from the dead. His resurrection, in that sense, vindicates him. Or we can say, his resurrection, in his resurrection, God justifies him, declares him righteous. And so you see this in 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16. It's one of Paul's kind of uh, reader's digest versions, if you will, of the work, person and work of Christ. He was manifested in the flesh, vindicated, or some of you probably have there in your little footnotes, or justified, because it's the same exact work, word in Greek that we would say for justified. So he was manifested in the flesh, justified by the Spirit, seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, taken up in glory. So there Paul says that God the Father justified Jesus. Now why this is important is that in Christ's resurrection and in his justification, when you are united to him by faith, then you share in his justification and in his resurrection. So that your justification, your declaration that you are righteous is connected to Christ's justification. Because if Jesus wasn't righteous, then can you be righteous? No. So if your representative is not righteous, then you're not righteous. But if your representative is righteous, then his justification is your justification. You share in it. And then by connection, his resurrection is your resurrection. And this is why Paul, for example, in 1 Corinthians 15 can say, the resurrection of the last day has already begun. It's begun because God has raised Jesus from the dead. He's the head of the body. And so as the head of the body has been raised, now we're just waiting for the rest of the body to be raised. Uh, So that's why uh, Christ's justification or his resurrection as his justification is so fundamental uh, for our justification. And even going back, you find further connections. We looked at this yesterday just a little bit, but in Romans 4.25, Jesus, who was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. Uh, So really, really important truth there. Do you have any insights as to maybe why we don't talk about this or why it's not emphasized? Um, I think that it's probably because, at least in the broader church, there's this assumption that eschatology, or talking about the last days, is something that you talk about at the end. In other words, when we talk about eschatology, it usually focuses on, when do you think the rapture is going to happen? Uh, Or when do you think Jesus is going to come back? Um, Or are you pre-mill, ah-mill, or post-mill, or pan-mill, which is, I have no idea. Um, And on the one hand, those are understandable questions, and I don't want to uh, uh, discount the importance of those issues. But what we don't realize is that in Genesis chapter 49, when uh, Joseph um, is speaking to the sons of Israel, 
uh, sorry, Jacob is speaking to his sons. He gives this prophecy. And he says, in the last days, uh, long story short, the lion of the tribe of Judah is going to show up in the last days. And you see this so that he's anticipating that with the arrival of the Messiah, you get the last days. The eschaton dawns. And you see this very clearly in Hebrews. You know, in times past, in various ways, God spoke to us through the fathers. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by Jesus, his son. So that the last days aren't something that we're waiting for, you know, when Antichrist shows up. Well, you know, when and if he shows up. I don't know if you ever saw Jack Van Impey. Uh, I, you know, I'd come home from church. On we don't Sunday show night. us. We don't show us videos here. Yeah, I, I would. I would watch late night cable TV, kind of decompressing after after preaching and teaching all day on Sunday, and I would watch him. You know, it's like, you know, the twelve member nations of the European Union. They're going to get together, and it's going to happen. And then you're going to see the rise of Antichrist. And I'd be like, wow, this guy needs to stop drinking coffee. Um, <laughs> But but Rexella is quite the theologian. Yes, yeah, yeah. I forgot about Rexella. Yes, yes, yes. His wife. Yes, she had quite the hair. Uh, but I thought it, but you said it. Yeah. Um, what we don't realize is, no, the last days aren't at the very end. The last days are now. You're living in them. Why? Because Jesus has come. And not only has Jesus come, but He has been raised from the dead, which signals that all of the stuff that we've been waiting for for thousands of years, ever since Eve first said, Behold, uh, the Lord, or sorry, Behold, behold, I have begotten a man, the Lord. She thought that Cain was the Messiah. So she's looking for the Messiah ever since then. Thousands of years go by. Now the Messiah has come. He's been raised. There's only one last piece of the puzzle to come into place, and that's the resurrection of the body, as is in the church. So we're in the last days. And this is why I think the emphasis on the New Testament is be ready. Be ready at a moment's notice. You know, because it's, he's going to come like a thief in the night. As Jesus said in the Olivet Discourse in Matthew 24, uh, people are going to be marrying and giving in marriage, and he's going to come. Uh, so that's why, you know, always be ready. So with Christ being justified, mm-hmm. it's a guarantee that we're justified. Mm-hmm. But in the here and now, we're justified by faith in him. Mm-hmm. But that guarantees that our future standing before God is already taken care of, right? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I think that, you know, uh, we were talking about this the other night at dinner. But I think for so many of us, myself included, you know, we can have a certain anxiety about meeting Christ in person, going to the final judgment. And as a child, I used to think, boy, oh boy, I hope that it's a private screening of my life. You know, it's kind of like, yeah, there's going to be some fun times and, you know, you know, the Lord will laugh because, you know, I was so dumb sometimes. But then other times I'm thinking, oh, goodness, there's just going to be some stuff that I'm going to say, can we, like, close the theater, usher everybody out, and uh, just me and you, Lord, because I'm going to be really embarrassed. And ashamed. Um, And so we're kind of anticipating, we're worried about that. Um, We think of the final judgment sometimes as like long lines at the DMV. You know, it's like, can you, 
you know, do you know what's going on up there? I don't know. This has just been taking forever. I think he's been talking to that one guy for like three hours. Um, maybe that's just me. I don't know. You know, um, that's the final judgment via government-run programs. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But if Christ's resurrection is his justification, the revelation that he's righteous, what Paul describes in 1 Corinthians 15 is that in the twinkling of an eye, you are transformed. You have a new body, a glorified body, so that without God saying a single word, you will look out upon the sea of humanity. And because you will see one group on the right hand of Christ with perfectly glorified bodies, and then on his left you will see a mass of unglorified people. They're raised, but they don't have glorified bodies. You will know who's justified and who is not. So that in that sense the Bible really has an emphasis on looking forward to the final judgment, where Paul says in 1 Corinthians 16, you know, right around 20, 21, 22, Maranatha, come quickly, Lord Jesus. Whereas I think for most Roman Catholics, it'd be like, no, don't come quickly. I, I still, I, I got a cram for finals. Uh, you know, I, I don't know if you guys remember this, but when you watch wealthy Roman Catholics sometimes, as they're late in life, they start giving a lot of money to the church. Like Frank Sinatra. Well, that's that. a good thing. Yeah, yeah. If you want to do that here, you can do that here. It's just not going to put you further up ahead in the line. That's all. Uh, you know, there's no appointments at the DMV up there. But uh, they, they're cramming for finals because they're running out of time. And they've got to up their, up their righteousness. Whereas if we really trust what the Bible says, then we can look forward to the final judgment because remember this. You're not going to see the judge. You're going to see your father who loves you and who sent your elder brother to die for you so that you can stand in his sight and to change metaphors as the spotless bride of Christ. So that's something to look forward to. You know, it's like some of my... One of my favorite verses in uh, the Bible, and obviously we all have lots, but one of mine comes from 1 John uh, chapter 3. Um, oh, sorry, here it is. Uh, where he says, See what kind of love the Father has given to us that we should be called children of God, and so we are. And so we are. Um, the reason why the world does not know us is that it did not know Him. Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will has, uh, be has not yet appeared, but we know that when he appears, we shall be like him because we shall see him as he is. You know, so it's like what we are isn't quite manifest yet, but when he comes, we'll be like him. He'll make us like him. He'll glorify us. So it's a thing to look forward to. Okay. Shifting gears again, I want to talk a little bit about Jonathan Edwards. Okay. So if you want to think about how you're going to respond to this question while I bring everybody else up to speed. Um, Jonathan Edwards, what, 1700s? 1703, I think, to 1758, give oh, or take. Okay. Scott Clark's not here, so... Yeah, no, yeah, okay. yeah. He's the historian. So Jonathan Edwards, we are, most of us are aware of him, um, and 
typically outside of Christian circles, he's the evil, mean, nasty, terrible guy uh, that they quote two lines from in public school textbooks and, and so bad for people's self-esteem because he preached that awful sermon, Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God, and uh, how awful to have a God like that. And you get the idea, right? Our kids read these books, and then they come home, and we talk to them about actually there was more to the sermon, and uh, there is this thing called total depravity, and there is this thing called the righteousness of God, and so on and so on. Then what happens a lot of times, uh, we, lots of us like to read theology. We like... Um, what I'm going to call big God theology that has a biblical view. Uh, God's in charge. God is sovereign. Edwards emphasizes that. Uh, there's a lot of good in Edwards. He was brilliant, uh, very, very smart. So we're drawn to him. Um, I remember in seminary, he was like the guy to read. You really want to make sure. Uh, I remember reading multiple biographies and thinking Edwards was super smart. And if we could just understand him better, we'll have everything figured out. So you go from hating Edwards uh, in, in modern times uh, to, th to learning theology. And you think Jonathan Edwards was like the, the best theologian on planet Earth. And then you start studying justification by grace alone, through faith alone, and Christ alone, and reading about the debates, and then you have a different perspective. So I just set you up um, to think about Dr. Fesco's response, answer, maybe help us sort through good and bad of Edwards. Okay. Um, Did I do okay setting that yeah, up? Yeah, yeah. Okay. Uh, I've read all of the works of Edwards. Um, I can't say that I remember everything. Uh, it was, I was in seminary, and this was back in the days when John Gerstner was still alive, and he offered to anybody who was willing, if you promised to read the works of Edwards within a year, he would send them to you for free. So I just thought, hey, free books, great. But if it was Gerstner, he would have said, yes. if you're willing to read the works of Edwards, yes. you might not. Escape the wrath of God. Yes, that's right. Okay, I just Followed want to interject. Followed by heavy emphysema breathing, you know, yes. Um, and so I did that, and then I thought, let me go to the library and look at these books. And then I realized it was about 2,000 pages of four-point font and double columns, and I thought, you idiot. <laughs> I checked out the books and I started reading. I was like, I can't wait. I've got to start working on this now. All I'm going to say is all the words passed in front of my eyes. Uh, we'll put it that way. Um, but uh, that being said, you know, don't get me wrong. Uh, you know, my folks always taught me, you know, you can learn something from everybody. Uh, you know, I like to say, you know, a blind nut can find a squirrel um, every once in a while. Uh, so um, there's a lot of good things in Edwards. I think there's a lot of things that are helpful. Uh, but all I can say is that there's a fog that settles over his doctrine of justification. And it's, 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 he says a number of things that don't quite line up with where others have said. For example, if you read James Buchanan on justification, fantastic book, Scottish 19th century Presbyterian theologian. Uh, you read John Calvin on justification, clear, I think, very clear treatment. Um, Francis Turretin, crystal clear. In fact, if you give me a choice between Calvin's Institutes and Turretin's Institutes, I'm stuck on a desert island. I take Turretin every time. Uh, yeah, love Turretin. He reads a little stiff. You know, he's like a, he's like a shot of espresso. 
but uh, still really good stuff, really good stuff. Uh, but yeah, there's a fog over, over Edwards. Do you want more specifics? Okay, more specifics. Um, in the historic reform definitions, look, for example, at the Westminster Confession of Faith, chapter 14, when it talks about the principal acts of saving faith. It says the principal acts of saving faith are resting, accepting, and believing in the work of Christ. Resting, accepting, and believing. Notice, or, or trusting, those are all passive things. We're resting because we're trusting in what Christ has done. Resting, accepting, and receiving. Um, now, we would say, and you see this in the chapter on justification, chapter 11, I think around paragraph 6, where it says that we do believe that faith works through love. So faith produces love. But love is not what we use in our salvation in terms of trusting in Christ. It's resting, receiving, and accepting. Now, we will love God. We will love Christ. But that's not how we receive Christ. Edwards flips that. And he says, love is at the heart of faith. And that's a really troubling move. Um, A second thing that he says is he says that when God justifies us, he takes into account our perseverance. And there's some really technical philosophical things going on there that I, you know, I, I don't want to get into other than to say that that's not the way that the historic reform faith unpacks it, where God is not looking to your perseverance. He's not saying, well, let me check out to see if you're going to make it. He says, I know you're going to make it because I've promised you that you will. I trust my decree more than I trust you. But Edward says, no, God looks ahead and says, yep, okay, he's going to make it, so I'm going to, I'm going to factor that. And then the third and final thing that Edwards does is he says, yeah, there's a justification uh, at the final judgment because God's got to take into account your works, because a faith is not complete until it issues forth works, is what he says. And again, there's some technical philosophical things. Now, Edwards on justification is one of the most debated topics, I think, in in church history. And here's what I'll tell you, is that some people have told me, no, I'm wrong. They say, you're wrong, Fesco. You've, You've misunderstood Edwards. But this is where I fall back on, and I say, well, people have said Edwards is straight as an arrow orthodox in the bounds of Reformed theology. They said that he's Roman Catholic. They've said that he is kind of closer, somewhere in between Roman Catholic and Reformed. They say that he's no more of a mystic. And I say... If they say that Edwards is all of these things, then one thing that he is not is he is not clear. Because you don't find that kind of confusion. You don't find that you know, spread of opinions on Calvin, Buchanan, uh, or Turretin, for example. And so that's why I think that there are many things that you can get from Edwards, but I wouldn't go to him for justification. Okay. That means if you have a 
Jonathan Edwards is my homeboy t-shirt. You can still keep it. But uh, just don't wear it to Theology for Breakfast on Tuesday mornings or we might mock you. Just kidding. We are out of time. Uh, let's thank uh, John Fesco for the interaction. Thank you.